This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. On Ask the AMPs, we take your toughest maintenance questions, you know, the ones that have your mechanics stumped, and try our best to give you answers and you know once in a while we actually do so if you have a question once in a while you have a question and and you know if you don't we're gonna have very short podcasts so we really (laughs) would encourage you to have to 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 submit your questions uh please please send in your questions by email to podcasts at aopa.org and um uh, we'll try to get you on the on the next uh, recording session for the show and if you like the show, wrong answers and all, please subscribe <laughs> and follow us. We'll be here. And if you'd like to get on our email list to get our, our monthly newsletter and other interesting stuff, uh, the easiest way to do that is to pick up your smartphone and text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. And a little email bot will ask you for your name and email address and put you on the mailing list. That's text the word savvy, S A V V Y, to 33777 to put yourself on our mailing list. Is that a prime number, Mike? Oh, God. 33777. Uh oh. I'll have Sorry. to. Sorry. Gosh, now we have to check. I've been hanging out with the mathematicians. It's at work. possible. It's, 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 it's odd. So it's at least starting in the right half of the, of the numbers. Yeah, I'll bet it is. <laughs> you know, he's going to think about that for the entire podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I may have to run a program to. So, Paul, I, I hear you have a fast airplane. <laughs> <laughs> Give us the yeah. serious fast story, Paul. <laughs> okay, this is the real short version that, um, and I'm not going to give out my, well, everybody knows my end number. Well, anyway, so I, I'm going to Myrtle Beach last week to do some presentations with the Sears folks. And I'm descending out of 11,000 feet. I have a 40 knot tailwind, which I never have a 40 knot tailwind. It's my first indicator that I was probably flying to the wrong destination. But anyway, in my descent, going down to 2,000 feet, the controller calls up and says, how long can you keep keep up that speed? And I thought very unprofessionally that he was just vicariously enjoying me going really fast. And I said, I can do this all day long. So he says, great. do that all day long to turn final, and I can get you in number two. So it's an apology for being so unprofessional, but also a big thank you 
to the controllers at Myrtle Beach, so being so cool about having such an unprofessional pilot arrive. But I was rocking, let me tell you. <laughs> so Paul and I did go make around. It, I did make it to a three-mile turn to final at a, a pretty decent speed. Good. You didn't have a citation flying up your backside. No, I think it was a 737. <laughs> oh. <laughs> was, so they said caution, wake turbulence to the 7.3. Right? I'm sure they did. I'm sure that's exactly what they said. <laughs> Our first question is from Lamberto, whose plugs are all wet. Go ahead, Lamberto. Yeah, um, I have a 152 with a um, with a spare hawk conversion, and uh, I'm having uh, the bottom plugs on the number two and four cylinder soaked with oil. And um, you know, this is a relatively new, new airplane with me. I, I did some research on the internet and found that it can be a common problem with 152s in general. And uh, I heard that, you know, basically cleaning the plugs every 25 hours, you know, is some, sometimes the best approach. But um, I'm not sure if that's because it can't be fixed, but it just seems odd that that, that someone would have to put up with that. Um, so I'm just, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, I'd like to fix the problem. Um, an AMP told me that maybe one of the rings uh, is stuck. So. They recommended a piston soak uh, with Barry Mints B12, I think it's called. Um, and That's I, pretty harsh. Um, yeah, it's pretty harsh stuff, but it, it, it would clean it. But I was afraid of if that stuff gets in the engine, it might affect the seals potentially. Um, <laughs> or uh, I'm not sure. There's a silk you know, thread in there, but I don't know if it affects that. But um, And then I thought maybe I could do that with you know, some other less you know, harsh material, more benign. But that may not, you know, fix it. But do I do I open the plugs and and rehone them? Uh, I'm sorry, open the cylinders and rehone them. You know, what what options do I have so that I don't have this reoccurring problem? I flew the airplane from California to South Florida, and uh, I had no issues at all. And right before I landed at my last destination, about 20 minutes early, I started to feel a little bit of a a vibration, and mm-hmm. and. And that, and then when I landed, I went to do the run up, and it uh, it was failing the run up. So that's when I started finding this issue. I cleaned the plugs and it ran fine, but it seems that I'm not going to make the 25 hour cleaning. So I'd hate to clean the plugs more often than that. I have, fortunately, unfortunately, I have two airplanes, so you know I'm <laughs> I'm not an AMP, so uh, so it's just I'd like to keep the maintenance as low as possible because there's already enough there. Did you just first curiosity? Did you check the gap at the spark plugs? I did not. Paul's going down the road that the plugs aren't firing consistently, so they're not cleaning. Yeah. You could also well, they're check, obviously not firing. Yeah, you could also check the resistance, right? There's sure. a couple things that cause the plugs. Yeah, I checked. I checked the resistance. I bought other plugs and put other plugs there. Um, oh, okay. what kind of what kind of plugs are you using? I bet they're BYs. The Sparrowhawk STC particularly calls for the 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 BY thirty seven. I'm going off the top of my head. Right. Um, yep. I'm I'm actually thinking of maybe buying the the other more expensive um, uh, fine wire plugs if that would help. But I don't want to do that if it's like man, that's not gonna really. Well, the, the, B, the BYs are probably as resistant to well fouling as any any plug. Yep. So if you are using BYs, that kind of rules out. 
doing anything in that department. Have you borescoped the uh, cylinders to look for the cross-hatching and that sort of thing? I did, and I didn't see much cross-hatching. Um, I had an AP look at it. He said, you know, that's the problem with today's borescopes. They, they look so good. They, 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 the camera is so Blame good that they find the any issue. <laughs> it's the borescope's fault. Funny. <laughs> but the other cylinders, I said, well, let me have a reference. Is it just, you know, because two and four have the problem. Let me look at the other two. And the other two looked identical to the, to the two and four. In other words, one and three looked identical to four. So I'm thinking, well, okay, that doesn't look like the issue, but maybe on two and four, it's, you know, I don't know what the ring looks like on two or four. How, how much time on these cylinders? Yeah, it's overall a thousand. And I think I'd have to look at the logs and I, I should have done that before this, but one of them was actually replaced recently. But I think that's, uh, that's not one of the, that's not two and four that was affected. Okay. Well, let's let's uh, well segue from from the spark plugs, which it sounds like you're using as good a choice of spark plugs as you could have, to this um, piston soak that you called it. I, I think your mechanic was onto something, but he was he he was a little bit off the mark. First of all, you you definitely don't want to put Berryman's in your engine. That stuff is really strong, and it's not going to do very good for for O-rings and gaskets and stuff. And it, it's not something you want to use in your, we use them in turbochargers and stuff, but those are all metal and they don't, they don't have any seals in them. And soaking is not what we want to accomplish because the, what's, what's messing the thing up if it's remediable without pulling the cylinder off, it's not something that's soluble in any solvent. You, you have to physically force it out. You can't dissolve it. So it's not something where you want to pour some solvent in there and let it sit for a week. It, that's just not the right thing to do. But we we do have a ring flush procedure that we recommend that does involve filling the combustion chamber of each cylinder to be treated with a pretty benign solution of oil and 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 mild solvent like Stoddard solvent or Varsol or something. And then putting the spark plugs back in to seal up the combustion chamber and pulling the prop through the compression stroke to force the fluid through the ring pack and through the, the, the little oil feed holes in the piston. If the problem isn't too bad, then you can force the fluid through and then you lather, rinse, repeat several times. And each time you force it through, it, 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 it flows a little bit more easily. Because you've been you've physically forced the gunk out from the, the the ring pack and the oil feed holes and, and into the crankcase, and of course, after you're done with this, you you, you drain all that stuff out of the crankcase and and put fresh oil in the engine. On the other hand, sometimes you you put the fluid in and you just can't pull the prop through, no matter how hard you pull on it, it's just locked. And when that happens, that means that that the problem has gone so far that the only way to remedy it is to is to pull a cylinder off and and physically clean up the piston and you typically will put new rings and a light hone on the cylinder put it so back together this procedure that mike's describing is kind of like flossing your teeth right you're you're <laughs> physically removing the obstruction where there should be a gap and there isn't a gap and he's saying if you can't floss anymore then you got to Go, to go into more dentist. dental surgery. <laughs> oh, 
flossing. Piston flossing. But so that's, it, it's, that's a it's good a, procedure. It, it's, it's an <laughs> unusual procedure in that it it can be therapeutic or it can be diagnostic, and you never know which it's going to be until you try it. Either you're able to force fluid through, in which case that's a really good thing, or you're not able to force fluid through, in which case that tells you very clearly that that cylinder is going to have to come off because it's so badly plugged up with gunk. And the gunk, by the way, is 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 lead sludge, and it 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 has to do with the fact that we run these engines on leaded avgas, and it's not good for them. And by the way, in the future, if you if you have the option of of running that 152 engine on MoGas, that's a better thing to do. It's a lot cleaner, but not it, not every airport has MoGas available, and a lot, a lot of people are allergic to hauling 30 30 pound cans <laughs> of fuel to dump in their tanks, especially in high wing airplanes. <laughs> but but in any case, uh, recommend trying the ring wash procedure, and maybe it'll be successful. And if it isn't, then at least you know where you stand and you know that the that the cylinders are going to have to come off and, and get owned and re-ringed and the piston cleaned up. Our next question is from Darren, who's thinking outside the preventative maintenance box. Go ahead, Darren. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, big fan of you all. Uh, I don't think I miss many podcasts. and. Uh, and I've spent hours talking with Paul New at C Triple P's. Um, so <laughs> I've met Mike once, actually at the Sears Migration in 2010, I think, mm. in Dayton. Didn't really have a long conversation with you, but I met you in person in Colleen. I look forward to when we can meet in person somewhere, somewhere. But awesome. anyway, my question, my question today, and and just my background, right? So I've been a plane owner for going on 16 years now. And I do a lot of, I, I do nearly all of my preventive maintenance uh, items I'm allowed to do. And I assist on annual inspections over the last, you know, three or four years. But my question is, you know, clearly if something is in the list of authorized owner PM items in the FAR, then it's allowed. However, and I've heard Mike talk about this a little bit, are there other items that fall into the same category for issues that are on the list. So for example, my, my classic one is we're allowed to clean and gap, remove clean and gap and reinstall spark plugs, right? But mm-hmm. technically, well, it's not listed in there. We're not allowed to do that with fuel injectors. And then, you know, of course, in my view, well, those are about the same level of complexity, right? As a matter of fact, some could make the case that no, no, the fuel injectors are actually less complex. So, uh, so anyway, that's my question. How do you guys read that? How do you, how do you look at that? Well, Mike, Mike has the answer, but I have to, I have to step <laughs> in because this, I was at an eye renewal seminar one time where they had a bunch of pilots there, long story. And this question came up and one of the FAA FISDO guys was talking about this. This is probably 10 years ago. And he said, how many in the room change your own tires? And half the room raised their hands, pilots, you know, and said, well, and how do you base, what do you base that on? And he listed the same things that you did. And he said, well, I don't think you can legally do that because it says you can change the tire, but in order to change the tire, you have to remove the brakes and that's not on the list. Therefore, you can't change the tire. 
Oy. And and I just, <laughs> my head exploded. I, I, I didn't know what to do with that. But then steps in some reasonable FAA legal people. But anyway, so just Mike has all the details of, of all that, but it's a representative list. Mike interprets it a different way. Well, it's, well, a, it's, it's been it's not a matter of how I interpret it. Yeah. It's a matter of, of, of how Skip Aberman at FAA Legal interpreted it before he retired. God bless Skip. I hope he's doing well. But because he, he was just one of GA's best advocates uh, when, when he was uh, when he was working at the uh, rulemaking division of the uh, office of, uh, of chief counsel at the FAA headquarters. Um, the, the, you know, be, before I answer your question, I, 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 I feel compelled to suggest that regardless of, of whether or not it is considered preventive maintenance, it's not a good idea to clean your fuel injectors <laughs> unless you know that there's something wrong with them because your engine monitor right. is telling you that you've got an but we, we, we have a lot of data on this and cleaning injectors causes more problems than it solves. So uh, it's not a good idea to do them prophylactically. I, I feel uh, that's a, a conversation that Darren and I have already had. It probably. <laughs> yeah. It is a good example in terms of, of, of the question you're asking. Be- because prior to, prior to 2009, um, I think almost all of us thought that the regulation in this area, which was is very, very clear, meant what it said. I mean, it seemed like, you know, the 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 list of 41 items that you're referring to is is in part 43, appendix A, uh, paragraph little paragraph C. And it starts off by by saying that the things on this list are the only things that that are considered to be preventive maintenance and and then there's an advisory circular that makes an even stronger statement that says if it's not on the list it's not preventive maintenance and so we all kind of assumed that that's what the FAA meant <laughs> and then in 2009 a legal decision legal interpretation came out of the rulemaking division at, at FAA headquarters that said the absolute opposite of that it's we call it the Khalil decision because it was a um, an interpretation requested by a guy named David Khalil, who was the vice president general manager of um, Bombardier Learjet, and he asked a very specific question. He, he basically asked whether whether a pilot was allowed to check the tire pressure on a particular Learjet model, or whether it took an A and P mechanic to do that, and the legal interpretation came back and and said we consider that to be a, uh, a preventive maintenance item even though it's not on the list checking tire pressure is not on the list but the FAA would consider that to be a preventive maintenance item and therefore if that Learjet is being used for part 91 a pilot's allowed to check tire pressure if it's being used for part 135 then it takes an A&P mechanic to check tire pressure but the interpretation didn't stop there. It could have, and it would have been logical to just answer the answer David's question. But it went way beyond that, and it and it said 
there are many, many tasks that the FAA would consider to be preventive maintenance that are not on the list, especially for small general aviation aircraft. And I'm trying to paraphrase this as best I can from memory. And it said the list in, in part 43, the list of 41 items should be thought of as an exemplary list, not as an exhaustive list. There are examples of things that the FAA would consider to be preventive maintenance, not a list of all the things that the FAA would consider to be preventive maintenance, even though the list itself says that it's, that it's exhaustive, the legal interpretation said, no, it's not. That's not what the FAA's intention was. You think they changed the rule, but it's very hard to change rules. So the legal interpretation actually takes precedence over the rule because it says, yeah, this is what the FAA, this is how the FAA interprets its own rules. So that leaves us with a very, very fuzzy situation where, where nobody knows exactly what things the FAA would consider to be preventive maintenance or not. And if we're not going to go call the FAA in, 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 at 800 Independence every time we want to do something and say, hey, is this okay? Which obviously would be ridiculous. We have to use our best judgment as to what the FAA would consider to be preventive maintenance. And I, I don't know of a single instance of an aircraft owner who, who performed any sort of a reasonable task on his airplane who got busted for it. I mean, that just doesn't, that just doesn't happen. So it, it's kind of, it's kind of be, between you and your conscience. So let's think about it. Uh, I think your point is well taken that r- removing a, a, a fuel nozzle and soaking it in Hoppy's number nine and putting it back in place is is comparable in complexity and risk and so on to changing a spark plug. It doesn't involve complex operations. It, you know, they both involve using a torque wrench. But but I think cleaning injectors, as misguided as an activity as it might be, uh, uh, is is probably one that the FAA would consider to be preventive maintenance. Again, nobody can say for sure. But it seems it seems like a logical. I think you would be on pretty firm ground if somebody challenged you. Unfortunately, on my home field, you know, I'm real good friends with the mechanic, and even when I'm doing PM items, right, I'm usually bouncing things off of him, asking a question, you know, that sort of thing. Um, And and when I have, you know, when I see something like when I'm doing an oil change and something doesn't quite look right, that is not related to the oil change necessarily, but I got the cowling off, you know, I'm always pulling him over and saying, Hey, what do you think of this? Well, thanks. Thanks, Darren. This was a great question. We had a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Thanks for calling, Darren. Thanks, Darren. Thank you. Our next question is from Christopher, who's trying to convince a skeptical group to fly beyond TBO. Hey, Christopher, good to have you on. Hey, guys. <laughs> Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So maybe a little bit of a backstory. Uh, I fly a 1980 FR-172K, which is basically a branch-built Skyhawk uh, XP2. 
um, with an IO360 KB engine in it. Um, it's a very small club in Germany. Um, the plane, unfortunately, doesn't fly very much, only around 50 to 70 hours per year. And it's at the moment, it's about 300 hours past TBO. So it's been flown on condition. The problem is that nobody really has a very good idea what that really means, um, other than just having the plane checked out for the annuals by, by the mechanic. So I've been, you know, drinking your Kool-Aid and uh, listening to the show, obviously, and tried to convince people to put in an engine monitor. Uh, I've failed so far. <laughs> and um, we've just sent off our first oil analysis. Uh, so that's a start. Mm-hmm. And um, as far as I know, it hasn't been bore scoped yet. So um, I've asked the mechanic, but I don't think they have done that. I have actually one and a half questions about this. So the problem that we have is um, recent, or yeah, recently I've seen that whenever we turn off the engine and 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 get out of the plane, you see a lot of just gunk, gunky stuff dripping down on the front wheel pan. And um, I've done some diagnostics and um, first cleaned the belly of the plane, which hadn't been done in a while, so that was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And after flying it some more, there really wasn't much on there. The inside of the cowling was clean. So apparently there was no you know, cracks or leaks or anything. And when I looked down where it was actually dripping from, it was not dripping from the breather line. So um, pressurized crankshaft would have been a really nice, convenient explanation, I guess. But apparently that's not the case. It was coming from, an, and I hope I get this right, uh, fuel drain line, cylinder fuel mm-hmm. drain line. That yeah. I somehow found that out in, in some yeah. manuals I got a hand on. Um, so that's what... Yeah, that's where it's dripping from. The plane doesn't really use a lot of oil, so it's a little bit hard to tell because, you know, in a flying club, obviously people tend to overfill it and then just, you know, uh, waste it. But um, it doesn't use a lot of oil. So I'm wondering, should we worry about this? Well, Go ahead, I'm Colleen. Not, I'm you not had clear on, on what this had to do with going over TBO, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what is it that's coming out of the drain? Have you identified, is it, it, if it's the cylinder drain, it should be primarily Avgas. Well, it, it, it looks like some fuel oil mixture to me. So it is really, it is oily. And- is there oil on the plugs? I mean, if the, if the oil is coming out of the cylinder, it would also be pooling on the lower spark plugs. Oil's hard, right? If you get oil on your engine, it's all over the engine. And it, it's very difficult to figure out where the oil's coming from. Well, we're... we're- we're talking about something different here, Colleen. It's not really an oil leak. It's 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 oil coming out of the, as I understand it, out of the induction system drain. That's what she's which, that's which what she's would, saying. Which would mean that oil is getting into the induction system. And there's only one way I know of for oil to get into the induction system, and that's via the the intake valve. The the oil from the rocker cover is able to get between the intake valve stem and the intake valve guide and get sucked into the intake port, which is how it would get into the induction system. This is a, a, a Continental IO360, so I believe it has uh, intake valve oil seals, and it might be that you have a bad one, but you need to verify this for, for one step at a time first of all you need to, to verify that that the inside of the induction system is oily which it shouldn't be 
And if so, then you got to find out which cylinder it is that's letting oil into the induction system, which you ought to be able to do with a borescope by borescoping the cylinders with the exhaust valves wide open and taking a look with the borescope back behind the open valve to see whether the backside of the intake valve is oily. And, and if you find one that is, then you know it's the culprit. And if, it, if, if it's an intake valve oil seal, you don't have to pull a cylinder to, to resolve it. Something you just pull a rocker uh, cover and pull the valve springs and stuff and, and you can replace it. But in terms of your, your going past TBO, so this really isn't a, a limiting in that terms. This is just another a maintenance thing that you deal with. And yeah, call- the oil consumption of the engine is is acceptable. This is not a big deal. It's not an airworthiness issue. It's an irritant that, that's probably worth running down, but it's it's not going to make anybody fall out of the sky or anything. Yeah, the, the plane had two cylinders replaced way before my time. I don't know, eight, ten years ago. But I guess I guess putting in an engine monitor would really really be something that makes you feel more comfortable about what you're doing. Oh, it's way more than that. So now since, you know, we, we try to, because we talk about engine monitors a lot, <laughs> we, we really try not to bring it up too much because we're kind of known for that. But since you brought it up, I think it's totally fair game. It's way more than just comforting. This is, this is data that can and should be used. And it can tell you all sorts of things like you're running past TBO there's a lot of things you want to be watching for, sticky valves, that sort of thing. And you can catch those in the engine monitor. Uh, but if you don't have one and something's not right, you've got injectors that aren't nice and clean. You have spark plugs that aren't firing right, mags that aren't oil that's fouling plugs or sticky exhaust valves, that sort of thing, which is really one of the things you're going to be most concerned about. You can get some indications that those are coming way in advance in plenty of time. To resolve the issue because cylinders are just accessories and you can deal with those. And uh, as long as you're monitoring those conditions, that engine can go a long, long time. So here's, this might be a stupid question, but in terms of bore scoping myself, do I basically just need fresh washers and a torque wrench? So if I, you know, pull the spark plugs out, I can replace those with fresh new ones and and I put them back in and then just take a borescope and have a go at it. Yeah. And actually we, we love it when, when aircraft owners borescope their cylinders because we, we tend to get better quality images from owners borescoping than we do from mechanics borescoping because the, the owners tend to know a little bit more about what we're looking for. <laughs> I think you'll have a lot of fun with the borescope. But yeah, the, the, now that now that you can get a really really high quality borescope for about two hundred and fifty dollars US, which is less than that in euros, uh, that that's uh, it's it's every owner really ought to have one. Every at least every maintenance involved owner ought to have one. In terms of going past TBL, Mike, in in one of your books, you you mentioned that it's sort of an a complicated engine or a failure prone engine that IO three sixty. Is there um, anything special we need to look out for? It, I, no, it, uh, I would not certainly not say it's a failure prone engine. It's a less robust engine than the bigger Continentals or than the four-cylinder Lycomings. So it's you have to be 
more careful not to abuse it. Yours is not a turbocharged one, so that that's that's a real plus. The turbocharged ones tend to be more more uh, troublesome than the normally aspirated uh, engines. But no, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with that engine. It's 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 just not quite as bulletproof as, as say the the four cylinder Lycoming is, but it's it's a good engine. Okay, um, so just one more reason to get a monitor then. Yeah, although look, in fairness, and nobody's a bigger proponent than engine monitors than I am, but but the, the engine monitor would not help you find out where this oil oh, is yeah. getting into your induction system. They're, yeah, they're, yeah. There, the, the engine monitor gives you a terrific amount of really useful data about combustion in the engine, but but things that are not combustion related, it's probably not going to tell you much about. They don't leap tall buildings in a single bound. <laughs> They're they great, but they don't do everything. They, 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 leap short, they leap short buildings in two bounds, right? Yes. <laughs> they can jump over a hangar, but maybe not a high <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for all you do. And um, thanks for being on bi-monthly now. That was <laughs> thrilling news. We'll Thank see. you. We're going to see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much. All right. See Take ya. care. Bye-bye. Okay, so we we love getting letters, and we've gotten a couple of really interesting ones recently that I wanted to read to you guys. The first is from Ryan. He said, I was listening to the most recent episode about magnetic compass issues in flight. Y'all talked about E-fields, magnetized frames, degaussing, or you remember degaussing. That was fun. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. But I didn't hear you say anything about cell phones. Ever hear of MagSafe and the big hullabaloo around people's implantable defibrillators slash pacemakers a few years ago? If you put the back of your iPhone up against steel, you'll feel it stick. Also, many phone cases have magnets in the back of them for attaching to credit card holders and other accessories. I had a similar issue in flight with my compass a while back and realized I had set my iPhone on the glare shield. After a couple of minutes wow. of scratching my head, I had a should have had a V8 moment, moved my phone off the dash, and lo and behold, my compass worked again. Could this user have recently gotten in the habit of setting his phone on the glare shield and maybe having a magnetic iPad mount? Well... Interesting. Yeah, but it, yeah. if you remember, cool. his his compass worked on the ground, but didn't work in flight. But the electric yeah, and a lower right. RPM, and, and also he's yeah. an engineer, and I feel like you know he's probably like created. That. But that is an interesting notion, cause right? We, we 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 do have magnetic phones, and we don't think about them being magnetic. Yeah. But I never put mine up there because it's too hot, right? It would overheat yeah. pretty quickly. So yeah. anyway, nevertheless, it's it's you got to think Good of idea. those things. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So, and this I love. This is about uh, degaussing again. Um, this is from Jeff. <laughs> you just like to say that, don't you? I do. Well, <laughs> we it. so this is from Jeff. He says, hi, everyone. Love the show. To go along with the discussion of degaussing, I worked for an airline that flew MD-80s, and these had a habit of becoming magnetized. We had a coil oh. that was large enough to encircle the fuselage, if you can imagine. <laughs> can you imagine wow. degaussing an MD-80? <laughs> My God. That's like an MRI it's like machine. A, it's like doing a submarine. So. Yeah. Big wow. thing. <laughs> he said there was a bunch of prep work, um, including leaving your credit cards in your locker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we had to get it past the nose gear. Yeah. Um, but we would run this coil over the fuselage all the way back to the wings, back and forth until it was degaussed enough to stop screwing up the instrumentation. Wow. It's the only airliner yeah. I've ever seen that required that kind of uh, treatment on a regular really basis. Well bound. That's, That's amazing. That is something. Because the MDA isn't exactly a steel tube no. airplane, you know, it's it's aluminum and, and plastic. And I 
can't imagine how it would get permanently magnetized, but that's fascinating. So you know that, I may be totally wrong because I'm not an airline guy, but I believe it was the DC-9, which is the predecessor to the MD-80, had a rearview mirror. Yep. To see the bugs hitting the back of the wings. No, to see the <laughs> compass that was mounted behind the pilot's oh, head. Oh, yeah, that's right. Really? That's right. Yeah. That's just wow. bizarre to me. Degaussing an MD-80. I would and love the, to see that. the compass that. had backwards, backwards numbers. Yep, everything was backwards. Oh, okay. You looked in the mirror <laughs> and it read properly. I like that, yeah. yeah. I'd love to see that coil. <laughs> I really yeah. would. And what do you <laughs> plug that coil into? Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. Probably 440 or something. Yeah. Probably. Get all the fillings <laughs> out of your teeth and <laughs> nobody the in the shop part. with a plate in Very their head. Cool. See, we love letters from listeners. They yes. always have yeah. good stuff. <laughs> those are, those are uh, very good. That's very good. good. Those are excellent. Our next question is from Callum, who is smelling fuel where he shouldn't or maybe when he shouldn't. Go ahead, Callum. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. I have a. Uh, interesting situation that i'm hoping you can help me troubleshoot maybe and uh i fly a v35b bonanza with a normally aspirated io520 bb and what happens is when i take off and i get to cruise and i transition from rich of peak to lean of peak for about 10 to 15 seconds i smell fuel in the cabin and then it goes away and it doesn't show up again um, for the whole flight so I guess I'm trying to figure out, A, how, how can that be even related to leaning and, and the possibility of smelling it in the cabin? And hoping you guys have some ideas of how to troubleshoot it and stop it from happening. Um, I did send in some pictures of my gammy injectors, which three of the six tend to have a fair amount of leaking going on. But I still can't understand how that would be related to just you know leaning the mixture. The fuel pressure obviously drops to a lower range, but uh, if you guys have any ideas, it would be appreciated. Did you go look back at the throttle body where the mixture control is? Back on the on the back of the engine, there's a lever and your mixture control is there. And I've seen those leak, uh, even from the, near the fuel pump. And as you move the mixture lever, it makes changes in that system. And mechanical, this, we have mechanical shaft that can open and it can, they can put out a significant amount of fuel. So I, I would take a look there. Mm-hmm. Hey, hey, Callum, you, you didn't happen to buy this bonanza from Tom Haynes of, of, of AOPA, did you? <laughs> the, the reason I ask is because, <laughs> because Tom, Tom had, had exactly this same symptom in his bonanza some oh, years ago and talked to me about it. Oh, um, yeah. Well, this is, I bought this two years ago and, uh, at the time, it was uh, I, the engine had twenty five hundred hours. So it was a this engine has about uh, uh, now has three hundred and fifty hours in about a year and a half. It, it would be a riot if if this was Tom's. So airplane. what was the solution for yeah, Tom? Yeah, what was Tom's like, well, solution? The, the, what we determined was that 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 he had a leak in the vicinity of his fuel selector valve. Yeah, the fuel selector. Um, and it was the airflow. And what what happens is that, you know, when you when you transition from richer peak to leaner peak, suddenly there's a dramatic increase in the mm. amount of fuel coming back to the through the return line. Right. To through the, the, the fuel selector back to the tank. Yeah. 
And so if, if there's, if there's, and, and the fuel selector in the Bonanza is a double decker fuel selector that, that not only controls where the fuel is coming from, but has another deck that controls where the return fuel is going to so that the fuel goes back to the same tank that it was coming from. And so if there's a, if there's a leak in the fuel selector or, or a leak in, in the attachment of the fuel lines to that second deck of the fuel selector, then that leak would, would be aggravated when you pull the mixture back to, uh, from Ricky Peak to Lena Peak. So uh, it's, it's possible that it's not the engine at all. It's possible that it's the. Um, that would make sense selector. with the, the smell system. being in the cabin way more. So uh, it, I would suggest in the, in the interest of troubleshooting, try leveling off and not immediately going to Lena Peak and see if you still get that smell. And if you do, then it's, uh, yeah, really. I've had, so, friend, I've had friends in there too, and I'm like, tell me if you smell this as well. And no matter if I wait three minutes or five minutes, it's the second I transition to Lena Peak. Okay. It comes so that, and it's like 10 seconds and then it disappears. Well, access well, uh, to the, the fuel the, selector is not bad. Yeah. The fuel, fuel selector on the Bonanza is, is, uh, is in the center beneath the floorboard. It's not on the side panel like it is in a pipe or anything. Uh, it's yeah it's on the oh, it's it on the on, it's not on the side panel it's oh, on the it is, floor it is but it's on the, the left side, side. I and see. it's okay. it's raised up a little bit how hard is it to get back there and look at it? probably it's, no i think you just no. pull up the floorboard the wooden the wooden, wood, the wooden, wooden floor panels which yeah. is just oh, wow. bizarre to me <laughs> <laughs> unless it's adrian's in which case it's carbon fiber. <laughs> yeah, that's fiber, right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's not going to be hard to it to see now to change it, that's a different yeah. world, but to see well, the well, problem. It's, it's not necessarily the fuel selector itself. It could be the, line connections, the yeah. lines connecting to the fuel selector. It, it, but what bothers me about this is, and, and I, that's a fascinating possibility. I wonder if there's some way of figuring if out whether that's where the smell's coming from. If you're doing this, this is inside the cabin, and if he's smelling fuel... Why would the fuel smell immediately go away? Because fuel smells inside the cabin linger. Hmm. Well, and and I would smell it. You would think you might smell it later just because the fuel staining. But So you think it's coming from the engine compartment? No, I, yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of, you know, overthinkers anonymous trying to think through if you got a short squirt of fuel that was enough to where you could smell it in the cabin, you should have stains that you can see. And then those stains well, you, will have an avgas smell you, for a long time. I mean, time. say you could see after you pull the floorboard. Yeah, you should be able to see it. But you should also, I would think, still be able to smell it. Like when you come back to the airplane a week later and it's been closed up and you open that cabin door, just a little whiff of avgas smell. But that sounds like a great place to start and it's easy to do. Also, open up the cowling and look on the back of the engine where your mixture control and the fuel pump are. Because even using Mike's analogy, or Mike, that's not really an analogy, using Mike's scenario, when you go from rich to lean, you suddenly increase the amount of fuel that wants to go back to the tanks. And maybe this is happening at some fitting out in the engine compartment. I don't know the Bonanza that well. In the 210, there's a one-way check valve mounted on the firewall. So there's several fittings in that return line. It, it could be at the fuel selector or, or almost anywhere in that line, but that's, that's an interesting 
thought. So you're looking for blue. Looking for no, blue. No, I, I, I did, I did take a, a, a good look at those photos that you sent of your, uh, of your gamma checkers, and it, it and it, it certainly does look like, uh, on a couple of them, there's, there's excess fuel that, that seems to be coming, out of the shroud where the, where the air screen is which would mean that it's fuel coming out of the little air bleed nozzles, uh, air bleed holes that you can't see because they're covered up by that shroud. But typically, the way that happens is, is from overpriming the engine. That typically wouldn't happen when the engine was running. Because when the engine's running, there's, there's a, a pretty profound vacuum inside the, inside the, the, uh, the intake port where the, where the fuel nozzle is screwed into. And it's it's going to be sucking air in through those bleed holes, not allowing stuff to come out. But when you're priming the engine by prior to start, you can be you can force fuel out out of those little things and create those fuel stains. So he's suggesting that's not related to your problem. It's possibly yeah. a separate issue. Yeah, you're not going to smell that. Yeah, that, that would be my my guess is it has nothing to do with this this issue you're talking about. It's something probably is happening during engine start and not while, while the engine's running. So multiple homework assignments. There you go. You have work so you to might, do. You, you might you might want to light, lighten up on your priming a little bit. <laughs> Does that work? <laughs> well, it's your partners. It's it's your partners. It's yeah, not you. It's, it's, it's somebody with yeah. a heavy thumb, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, well. Okay, thank you. I'll, I'll give that a try. I appreciate it. All right. We'll look for your report. Good luck, Paul. Hey, thanks, Cal. Thanks, Gallum. Our next question is from Jason, who might have a sticky valve or might not. He's not sure. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, so it's a uh, 63 model uh, Cessna 182 with the, um, the 470R. And it was working great. I bought it in summer. And as the weather started getting cooler, I noticed uh, rough operation right after start. And it has a uh, JPI, I think it's the 930. It's a small one, but the one with all the stuff on it. Awesome. And what I'm finding is that number five is either not lighting completely or slow to light. It's not at zero degrees Fahrenheit EGT, but it's it's several hundred degrees cooler than all the other cylinders. And mm -hmm. and this is only when it's cold. When it's warm, it won't do it. Um, and the colder it is, the worse it is, uh, the longer it runs before finally that cylinder decides it's going to catch up to the others and it gets noticeably smoother and, and good idle and all that stuff. I did do some research online about this, and it seems like there's a few other people running around that uh, also post that their number five and their 470 doesn't always want to light off uh, right. So uh, I was wondering if there was really a problem. My, my mechanic doesn't think that there is one. For what it's worth, we did, uh, well, I borescoped the cylinder, and it seemed like, you know, just turning the, the prop through by hand slowly that the valve moved uh, smoothly. There weren't any marks that I could see on the on the piston crown. So basically nothing seemed amiss that I could tell. I did note that the, the cylinder has kind of lost all its honing. It's, it's pretty glazed or, or worn yeah. or whatnot. And it, it does collect some oil um in there between between running um so there is a little bit of i guess oil infiltration into the combustion chamber engine doesn't burn too much i mean i think i add maybe a quart every eh, 
five or six hours, maybe more. Otherwise runs fine. Everything seems good. It's, it's just that issue uh, starting when it's cold. I love the pictures. Yeah, those are nice great job. pictures. Yeah, Jake. good job. Did you, did you take those? I did. Yeah. Ooh, you want a uh, job? What, and what kind of borescope <laughs> did you use? Uh, that's the Vividia. Vividia. Um, yeah, VA two hundred. I think. That's yeah, VA four hundred. Yeah. Nice. Very very nice. Very very excellent boroscopy. Mm-hmm. I mean, the symptoms you described sure sound like classic morning sickness symptoms. That's not very common in in the 470 engines and the in the big bore continental engines, but it, it's possible. And looking at your borescope images, there there is actually a fair amount of exhaust buildup on the on the stem. So it, it's it is possible that that you have a valve hanging up. Although it's it's interesting that when you exercise that valve of cold, looking at it with a borescope, it did not seem to be hanging up, which you know sort of makes me question whether it whether whether it is a sticking valve. But boy, the symptoms you're describing are, are seem like you're just sort of classic. So, um, Jason, if sticking. When you watch the when you first start the engine, you're watching the temperatures. You said the EGTs are really low. How about the CHT? Uh, also low. So I don't think it, like it's a sensory issue or anything like that. Um, the number five cylinder is much slower to rise. Really doesn't rise until it starts firing normally. And how long does this take? So like I think the seconds? longest I've ever gone is like a minute to a minute and a half, and that's when it was pretty oh. much like right around freezing. Hmm. That's a long, long it's a long time to be rough. I mean, why not just tell them to ream the yeah, that, ream well, the I mean, hundred degrees cooler? It's not like zero, but yeah, a few hundred degrees. Yeah, it's not it's not going to be zero no. because the because even if that cylinder isn't firing at all, the your EGT probe's gonna be seeing some exhaust from the adjacent cylinders. Yeah. So it gets is, a little heating. And yeah. similarly with CHT, even if the cylinder isn't firing, the 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 the, the, the cylinder it's going to warm up some because it's sitting next to two neighbors that are warm or one neighbor, I guess, in this case. If this had been a Lycoming, I would have had the, you know, had it reamed hours ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just ream it as a. I would just course. give it a try. Yeah. It's, it's rare. And, like, and you know, you've done and everything right. Diagnostically. There's no real official wobble test for continentals or, or specs as to how much or how little wobble are supposed to be. But it's easy to do. But I mean, usually the problem with Connells is the opposite. Usually the valves are real well. <laughs> yeah, lots of yeah. Well, but it, it, just out of curiosity, when you when you're when you were watching the valve open and close with the borescope, a, as the valve closed into the seat, was it sidestepping at all, or did it seem to go just straight in? No, it it seemed like it was straight in, but I I'm not sure if I would be. That's remarkable because usually they sidestep because the valve guide's so worn. As improbable as it is with a with a four seventy, it just the symptoms sound so sticking valve ish that just I, do it. I think I would pursue that a little bit further. Yep, might might be might be worth you know removing the valve springs and. I mean, just, you're doing everything right. You know, all the questions are, and you collected all the right data. This is what it's all pointing to. So give it a try. Okay, appreciate the uh, appreciate the input. Yeah, well, we we want to know if it works. And w- when the when the when when you see this happen, where where the where the, the 
cylinder doesn't seem to be lighting off right away, you're also noticing that the engine's running quite rough until that, that cylinder yeah. finally yes. decides to light up. <laughs> yeah. Okay, just, just to eliminate yeah. that this is Seem, complete. Yeah. Seems like it's all confirmed. Yeah. Can, and, and it has been going on for a long time because because I, I purchased it in, like I said, summer, and I asked the previous owner, like, have you had it from? And he said, no. But then I, I looked at the API <laughs> data, and, and yeah, he had. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I guess he just hadn't noticed. But I know there's nothing nefarious about it. But The um, engine monitor doesn't lie. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> My question is, is the 470 an interference fit? What do you mean? Yeah, you know, I, I, I saw that in your question. I wasn't I don't know sure what, what you were what you were referring to uh, when you say is it an interference fit? If a valve was fully open, would it actually contact the the piston? Oh, oh no, that's no. that's not that's not an interference fit. But okay, sorry for using the wrong terminology. The, yeah, that's what the, I was wondering now. If the valve was stuck in the fully open position, the the piston would hit it. Yes. <laughs> Uh, the, the the valve the, the valve needs to close before the piston gets to top dead center. The valves don't always stick open. They stick in any other position they want. Mm, yeah. They stick yeah. closed. They stick half open, half closed. So, and that'll okay. affect what the EGT does. So sometimes you can have a valve that sticks partially open. So your EGTs will come up just fine, but your CHTs will not. And Doesn't make compression. Yeah, so it's the CHT is your proxy for power. And uh, if your EGT is looking good, but CHT is not coming up and it's running rough, then that's that's another way to to look at it because EGT is not always going to be the indicator. So if it sticks all the way open, your piston gets it. Yep. And if it sticks all the way closed, your push rod gets it. So yeah. no, no free <laughs> yeah. lunch here. <laughs> there's, yes, there's no free you probably need to check the push rods and everything too, right? You said you did, yeah. but you might want to, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, you have... yeah, when you've got the rocker arm off to, to ring the valve, you're just going to slide the, push... the, the push rod tube, not the push rod tube, the push rod, lay it on the table and roll it, make sure it's and roll straight. It. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty simple. Yeah, and, and, and then you'll... You'll be able to see if the valve seems to move smoothly in the guide or yeah. whether you need a mallet to move it. That's not a good right. sign. Yeah. yeah, it should move very freely and even have a little bit of a wiggle to it. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I think I think you'll find it yep. kind of fun, actually. Yeah. It's kind of fun engine maintenance. There you go. OK, there. Go well, have some fun, Jason. Your yeah, permission good. to go have fun. <laughs> Good luck, go, Jason. Go wiggle a valve. Go wiggle Thanks a valve. Thanks for the question. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> see, see you, Jason. Well, that's a wrap on another podcast. What did we get right? And more importantly, what did we get wrong? We never get anything wrong. Uh, Paul oh, does. Oh, I do. I do. I'll, I'll would, be the guy. We would all love to hear from you. Please keep sending us your tricky questions and see if you can stump us. The questions and comments can be directed to podcasts at aopa.org. We'll see you. Bye-bye, everybody.